Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, everybody. Do you have an idea for a true crime podcast? I publish true crime podcasts at my YouTube channel, Leader One Studios. I currently have 23,000 subscribers who are always looking for new true crime podcasts to listen to. This is an opportunity to build an audience quickly. If you're interested in joining the Leader One Podcast Network, send an email to morgansvariety at gmail.com and we can discuss the details. Hello everybody, gratitude to everybody for listening, and additional heaps of gratitude to everybody who donates to the Patreon account. You keep the show going with your donations. As I keep the expenses paid, the more content I can create. You can donate at www.patreon.com slash leader1, or if you'd like to make a one-time donation, you can send one through PayPal at morganrector331 at hotmail.com. Remember, there is no minimum donation, no maximum donation. If $1 a month is all you feel like you can manage, especially in these difficult times, it's still appreciated. Thank you for everything and enjoy the show. Welcome to Human Monsters, and this edition of The Long Shadow. Case number one. Abuse so horrific, the victim has been classified as Child B. Kimberly Hart and Samuel Duncan were sentenced to a total of 22 years for the torture and murder of their four-year-old daughter. Among the many tortures they visited upon her, pouring boiling water on her hands, tearing clumps of hair from her head, kicking her repeatedly in the groin, causing extensive bruising and liver damage, forcing her to sleep naked in a dark bathroom, forcing her to eat her own feces. Aside from the victim's status within the vulnerable sector due to her age, she also had cerebral palsy, making her an easier target. The abuse was known to authorities long before the victim's death. She was removed from her parents' home due to suspicions that she was under attack. January 2005 
The girl was placed back in her parents' home. The abuse resumed just weeks later. The girl was once described as happy and sunny. She loved to sing and dance. After suffering the abuse, she became easily frightened, introverted, and became unable to walk. She was constantly in physical pain. Her grandmother suspected she was being abused and called social services. Social workers and police were dispatched to the child's home, and just in the nick of time, she was so egregiously injured that medical professionals ascertained she would have died had she been neglected of medical treatment any longer. She was in so much pain, she could only be examined after general anesthetic was administered. A pediatric registrar described her injuries as the worst abuse he had ever seen. Though her parents have been widely condemned, it is not just they who are considered to be to blame. Criticism has been directed at social services for mishandling the case. On at least 20 of their visits to the family's home, accompanied by medical professionals, the child continued to suffer. On five occasions, they accepted the mother's explanation that the child was not at home because she was out with her father. Michelle Elliott, a representative of the child protection charity Kidscape, said the social workers should not have accepted the explanation that the child was out. Commenting on this, Elliott said, It is pathetic they accepted such excuses. I know they are in a difficult position, but common sense should tell you they were hiding something, which they were. A government oversight agency insisted that the injuries were not foreseeable and that malpractice could not be cited as a legitimate cause. The judge presiding over the case said, The physical scars may well heal in time, but I doubt the mental scars ever will. I have anxieties about the way this child was returned to her parents against the express wishes of her foster carers. Westminster City Council's Department of Social Services has provided me with a serious case review executive summary. It acknowledges failures and makes recommendations. Its reading inspires hope for the future. Before Kimberly Hart and Samuel Duncan were taken to their holding cells, someone from the public gallery screamed out at Duncan, You bastard! Rotten hell! What have you done to this poor girl? Detective Sergeant Anthony Smith of the Child Abuse Investigation Unit said of the victim, Before the little girl lived with Hart and Duncan, we are told that she was a cheerful, happy child who was coping with her disabilities. By the time she was taken to hospital, and I met her for the first time, she was in obvious pain, withdrawn and frightened. She is a wonderful child and is doing far better now. I can only hope, now that they are out of her life, she will have the opportunity to grow, both physically and emotionally, to her full potential. Case number two. Brantley Justin Smith's Tragic Two Years of Life June 2018 When paramedics arrived at a home in Lawrence, South Carolina, two-year-old Brantley Justin Smith's body lay lifeless next to a dog 
who protected him and wouldn't let anyone near. His six- and eight-year-old brothers told police they heard their brothers screaming throughout the night when he was murdered. The victim presented with bruises and bite marks all over his body. There were also indicators of sexual abuse. The perpetrator, William Looper, said he abused the boy for two weeks and didn't understand what drove him to it. He pleaded guilty to murder, first-degree criminal sexual conduct with a minor, three counts of unlawful neglect of a child, a charge of committing or attempting to commit a lewd act on a child, buggery, and three counts of disseminating hateful material to minors. He was sentenced to life in prison. Prosecutors agreed not to pursue the death penalty as part of the plea deal. The boy's mother, Jessica Blake Smith, was working when her son died. She was charged with homicide by child abuse and two counts of unlawful neglect of a child. Case number three, one seriously brutal hate crime. 42-year-old Tamil Esco, a resident of New York City, has been charged with a hate crime after assaulting an elderly Asian woman. Esco is African-American. The assault was captured on a security camera. The incident occurred at an apartment complex in Yonkers. Police received word of a dispute. They were informed that a woman was bleeding at the location and that the suspect was standing outside. When first responders arrived, they found the 67-year-old victim after she had suffered severe injuries to her face. Tamalesco was taken into custody without incident. It was only while viewing the surveillance footage when the police discovered how heinous the assault really was. When she pushed her wheeled cart in through the front door of the building, she took out her keys to push open the second door. A man entered the vestibule behind her. Unprovoked, he crouched and punched her in the head repeatedly, sending her to the floor. He punched her a total of 124 times. He switched fists alternately and methodically, raining blows on her head and face over a minute. Following this, he stood and stomped on her seven times. He finished by spitting on her. Esco walked out the door casually, as if nothing remarkable had happened. Meanwhile, his victim was barely moving and bleeding profusely. When the victim was examined in hospital, doctors discovered multiple contusions and lacerations on her head and face. Her facial bones were fractured. There was some bleeding on her brain. Despite all this, she was listed in stable condition and soon recovered. She later told police that as she passed the perpetrator, he called her an Asian bitch. She ignored him as she made her way inside. Esco was charged with one felony count of attempted murder as a hate crime and one felony count of assault as a hate crime. He was held without bail. Reportedly, he has a criminal record with 14 previous arrests. Half were felonies. He was convicted for assault in 2011. Hate crimes against Asians escalated with the advent of the coronavirus. 
many Asian American women lined up to receive free canisters of pepper spray. Case number four. Rita Jordan's remains contradict her executioner's lies. March 2013. Nova Scotia resident Rita Jordan disappeared at this time, and her boyfriend Paul Trevor Kalnan has been the prime suspect. Both parties were regular users of crack cocaine, and their relationship was volatile. On the night of Rita's disappearance, Rita announced to Trevor that she was planning to move out of his home. It resulted in a heated argument. According to Callanan, Rita took a swing at him in a rage, but missed and fell down the stairs, sustaining fatal brain damage. He claims he applied mouth-to-mouth resuscitation techniques without success, as she had expired. Kalnan didn't bother to notify first responders. Instead, he smoked some crack. He then proceeded to remove her body from the house. Kalnan burned her corpse several times before scattering her ashes in a lake. Rita's friends suspected something was very wrong without being aware of the incident. To quote Halifax RCMP Corporal Scott McRae, Police suspected that foul play or something serious had happened to Miss Jordan because she went from being very active on social media, regular interaction with friends, to zero. Callanan was taken into custody in Halifax. A Supreme Court judge said, It is clear that he properly equipped the jury to make reasonable inferences from the circumstantial evidence without resorting to specious reasoning or speculation. Paul Trevor Kalnan was sentenced to life in prison for second-degree murder after his attorney tried to appeal the charge down to manslaughter. The conditions of his sentence rendered him ineligible for parole until after serving 15 years. He was handed a concurrent sentence of five years after he pled guilty to indecently interfering with human remains. Rita Jordan's remains were never found. Case number five, Issei Sagawa will not have the veggie burger. Issei Sagawa, also known as Pang and the Kobe Cannibal, was born in Kobe, Japan on April 26, 1949. His was a troubled birth. He was born so premature he could fit into the palm of his father's hand. He developed enteritis at this time. It is a disease of the small intestine. Though he recovered after treatment, his constitution was fragile and would remain so for the rest of his life. He was also introverted. Spending so much time alone led to a passion for literature. Issei completed a master's degree in English literature. A pivotal moment happened in Issei's life while he was in the first grade. After taking an unabashed look at a man's thigh, he began to fantasize about engaging in cannibalism. In 2011, Sagawa did an interview with Vice, wherein he confessed to having sex with his dog in his youth and also to having cannibalistic fantasies about eating the body parts of women. When Issei was 24 years old, he followed a German woman to her home. He broke into her apartment while she was asleep. 
His plan was to cannibalize her, starting by slicing off part of her buttocks and stealing away into the night with a small chunk of her flesh. She woke before he could do this and pushed him to the floor. He was arrested and charged with attempted rape. He didn't mention his cannibalistic agenda to the police. 1977. Issei was 27. He moved to France, where he pursued a Ph.D. in literature at the Sorbonne in Paris. His desire to eat female human flesh persisted. To quote Sagawa, Almost every night I would bring a prostitute home and then try to shoot them. But for some reason, my fingers froze up and I couldn't pull the trigger. June 11, 1981. Sagawa, now 32, invited a classmate, Dutch national René Hartevelt, to have dinner with him at his apartment. The idea was that after dinner, she would help him translate poetry for a school assignment. His real agenda for the evening was to kill and eat her. She was very beautiful, and her health was robust. He was lacking in those qualities. He had low self-esteem, seeing himself as ugly, weak, and diminutive. He was only four foot nine, which didn't help. He wanted to absorb her energy. While René read from a book of poetry, he shot her in the neck with a rifle. According to Sagawa, he was so shocked by what he had just done that he fainted. When he came to, he realized it was time to execute the rest of his plan. He proceeded to defile Renee's corpse. When he sunk his teeth into her flesh, he found that his incisors were not sharp enough to tear away her skin. He went out and bought a butcher knife. Having become properly equipped, he ate Renee piecemeal. He ate most of her breasts and face, some parts raw and others cooked. He stored other parts in the refrigerator. At every stage of consumption, he took photos of her partially mutilated body. He dumped what was left of her remains in a lake, carrying what was left of her in two suitcases. He was caught doing so by police four days after his first bite. Issei Sagawa was deemed insane and unfit to stand trial. After spending some time in a psychiatric hospital, he was released. Documents about his crime and arrest were not released to Japanese authorities. He was examined by doctors in his homeland and determined to be sane. He checked himself out of the hospital on August 12, 1986. He has remained free since that day. The decision to grant him freedom has been widely condemned. In his Vice interview, he said that trying to earn a living as a known murderer and cannibal is a terrible punishment. Case number six. Anae Diaz loses her life due to a warped perspective on discipline. During the 11th year of her life, Anae Diaz suffered unimaginable torture at the hands of her father, Rene Diaz, and her adoptive mother, Crystal Diaz. Anae was frequently handcuffed to the TV stand adjacent to their bed. They would beat her and force her to take cold showers. It all began when they suspected her of drinking alcohol and stealing medication. 
as a response to these suspicions, the couple burned Anae with a three-pronged barbecue fork. This marked the beginning of a horrific phase in the girl's life when she was subjected to extremely painful tortures. The abuse began around October 2020. It was about this time that Anae started stealing medication prescribed for depression. She also took to drinking bleach and hand sanitizer. She was punished by being beaten with a wooden spoon, punched and kicked at full strength. She was locked up at night so her parents could monitor her. As an additional punishment, she was not given a blanket. When police searched the home, they found the handcuffs that were used to restrain Anae. They also discovered a video shot on a cell phone that contained images of Anae being beaten. The morning Anae died, her parents told people that she had developed a severe cough and eventually stopped breathing. They said they put a plastic bag over her mouth in an attempt to revive her. When this failed, they called 911. This represented the first time they sought medical treatment for the girl. They didn't even arrange for medical intervention when she drank bleach. Anae died on March 23, 2021. She perished an hour after her parents called 911. Renee and Crystal Diaz have been charged with torture, mayhem, and child abuse. If they are convicted, they are likely to face a sentence of life in prison. Case number seven. Somebody forgot to tell Israel Jermaine Williams that you're not supposed to commit rape once, let alone a hundred times. Alexandria, Louisiana resident Israel Jermaine Williams has been accused of committing a hundred counts of first-degree rape, among other offenses. Williams's name emerged in the eyes of authorities after he was connected to the sex trafficking of a juvenile. The investigation incorporated the efforts of the Children's Advocacy Center, the Louisiana Department of Child and Family Services, the Alexandria Police Department, and the Senlet Child Trafficking Task Force. Williams was arrested on March 25, 2022. He was remanded into the Rapids Parish Detention Center. He is held on a $5,453,000 bond. The complete list of Williams's charges. 100 counts of first-degree rape. Two counts of molestation of a juvenile victim under 13 years of age. Obstruction of justice. Issuing worthless checks. Contempt of court. Case number eight. Hey Greg, you were supposed to wait eight years. 29-year-old Memphis, Tennessee resident Gregory Hickman has been convicted for raping an 11-year-old girl in 2016. The unnamed victim's mother noticed that her daughter appeared to be with child in October 2016. Her daughter told her that Gregory Hickman raped her earlier that year. According to the district attorney's office, Hickman walked her home from a store but made a detour and brought her near some bushes. There, he pulled her pants down and penetrated her forcefully. Hickman threatened to murder her if she reported the incident. The victim brought the child to term, and the baby was born in December 2016. 
DNA testing confirmed that Gregory Hickman is the father. Hickman was officially convicted on April 1st, 2022. It took the jury less than 20 minutes to find him guilty. He will be sentenced on May 12th. Hickman has a pending case involving a 13-year-old girl who is his current girlfriend's daughter. He was smiling in his mugshot. Case number nine. Javed Iqbal is the sickest serial killer you've never heard of. Javed Iqbal Omair was born on October 8, 1956 in Lahore, Punjab, Pakistan. He was the sixth of eight children born to a successful businessman. December 1999. Iqbal sent a letter to police and to Kawar Naim Hashmi, chief news editor of a Lahore newspaper. In this letter, he confessed to raping and murdering 100 male orphans and runaways, all aged between 6 and 16. He claimed to have strangled and dismembered every victim. He said he disposed of their bodies by immersing them in hydrochloric acid. He dumped what remained of every corpse into a river nearby. Iqbal's house was examined by police and journalists. There were bloodstains on the walls and floors. A chain that was used to strangle his victims was on display. There were plastic bags containing photographs he took of his victims. These objects were neatly labeled with handwritten pamphlets. Two vats of acid containing partially dissolved human remains were left on the premises. A note was left for police, explaining that the bodies were not discarded because he wanted the police to find them. In the letter, Iqbal indicated that he intended to drown himself in the Ravi River following his killing spree, but police did not find any evidence after dragging the river. A quote from the letter, I have killed 100 beggar children and put their bodies in a container. The letter and the pamphlets were not the only documents that were found. Iqbal wrote a diary containing 32 pages that described the rape and murder of the boys and even included their photos. The largest manhunt in Pakistani history was launched. Four of Iqbal's accomplices, all teenage boys who shared his apartment with him, were arrested in Sahoa. One of them died days later. Speculation has it that he was subjected to police brutality. Supposedly, he jumped from a window to his death. Following his arrest, Iqbal stated his motive, saying he was angered by what he considered to be an injustice committed by Lahore police. They arrested and charged him after he sodomized a young male runaway in the 1990s. The charge did not stick. His mother, in his words, had, quote, been forced to watch my decline. She died from cardiac arrest soon after. Following this event, Iqbal became resolved to make 100 mothers cry for their sons as his mother had before his death. He turned himself in because he was afraid police would kill him. Some quotes attributed to Javed Iqbal. I have no regrets. I killed 100 children. I was denied justice. I could have killed 500. 
This was not a problem. Money was not a problem. But the pledge I had taken was of 100 children, and I never wanted to violate this. Remarking on an incident when he was beaten by police while being investigated for the sodomy allegation, he said, I was so badly beaten that my head was crushed, my backbone broken, and I was left crippled. I hate this world. Commenting on how his mother's death motivated him to kill, he said, My mother cried for me. I wanted a hundred mothers to cry for their children. Iqbal was sentenced to death. When the judge passed down the sentence, he said, You will be strangled to death in front of the parents whose children you killed. Your body will then be cut into a hundred pieces and put in acid, the same way you killed the children. Pakistan's interior minister, Moy Nuddin Haider, opposed the sentence, pointing out that Pakistan is a signatory of the Human Rights Commission and therefore, quote, such punishments are not allowed, unquote. Iqbal hanged himself in his cell before the execution came to pass. It was the day of his 45th birthday. Thank you for listening to The Long Shadow. Bye for now.